Welcome back to PS Voice, our podcast featuring Project Syndicate writers, leading global thinkers, in conversation with the editors that publish them. In this episode, former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Jim O'Neill, discusses the outlook for the BRIC economies, a term he coined, and the economic fallout of the Brexit referendum. I'm Anatole Koletsky, a PS contributor myself, and our guest today is Lord O'Neill, inventor of the term BRICS to describe the four great emerging economies that will dominate the world in the future, former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and until recently a Treasury Minister here in Britain. From the press, we have Jennifer Neal of Leco in Brussels and Leonardo Maizano, London correspondent of Il Sole 24 Ore, the leading financial newspaper from Italy. Jim, uh, you invented this idea of BRICS, the four big emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, which you argued when you uh, wrote your paper, I think about 15 years ago, ago. were really going to generate most of the global growth in the 21st century. Uh, How do you feel that prediction has gone looking backwards? You wrote a piece on Project Syndicate about it, saying that you'd got it right, but wasn't that really just China's success rather than Russia, uh, Russia, Brazil, and even India? It's going to be stuck on my forehead for the rest of my life. Um, I I wrote the piece because it it was literally days after I left the government and I was sort of trying to reflect on on life around the world. And it happened to be the 15-year anniversary when I thought about it. Um, To to come to the nux of your specific question, I think it's, as I tried to argue briefly in the piece, in the first decade of the, the phrase, growth in all of them was way stronger than the, uh, the three scenarios that I looked at as being possible. And so even with what are considerable disappointments uh, in at least two of them this decade, where, where they sit today compared to 15 years ago is pretty much in line uh, and in some, in, in some cases way ahead of where I said. So of course, uh, Looking back, particularly because of what we are going through and what we've gone through recently, obviously significant disappointments. And decade two has so far been pretty disappointing. But because of where we were 15 years from the start, it still seems to me broadly on course for where it could ultimately go. So, so what's but your of prognosis? Of course, China's a, a dominant yeah. Yeah. And what's your prognosis for these countries for the next 10 years, especially in a period of stagnation in the rest of the world economy. Who is going to be the driving force? So is you, it still going to be China? I mean, as, you, it, imply, yeah, as yeah. you implied with your question, I mean, I mean, chi- what goes on in China, in my judgment, is, is, is more important on its own than virtually any other place in, in the world, with the possible exception of the US, possible exception. And so obviously it dominates the BRICS. China's as big as the other uh, three put together. Uh, even though India's growth rate will be faster than China's the rest of this decade. Let's say if India was to grow by eight and China grows by only six, China would create close to another two Indias this decade. So, you know, China is, is just crucial to everything we want to talk about. Uh, Jim, I'm curious to understand, it. there was another group of countries immediately after the so-called, if I'm not mistaken, next 11, <laughs> right? Do you see any of them it being able 
you know, to come into the BRICS. So to be able to have such a growth that they will replace some of the BRICS that are not performing as well. The next 11 was uh, something I dreamt up. And it, it was done to consciously look at what other big emerging countries had the potential to be as big as the BRICS. Uh, and partly because of its demographics, Indonesia is, is almost definitely one of them. Mexico, if you had a lot of things going right, maybe. But for all the rest of the so-called Next 11, uh, as, as, in, as exciting and as important as the growth opportunity in some of them may be, uh, to become as big as the BRIC countries, I think, would be pretty difficult. But, uh, among the BRICs, uh, there's Brazil and Russia that are commodity-related, and, yeah. and it's the forecast for the economy are not really great. So what's your perspective for those two countries? Sometime reasonably early in the whole process, probably after about five years or so, I, I was sufficiently not that daft that I realized that you couldn't really truly test the long-term uh, ability of Brazil and Russia to become something big until we'd gone through a down cycle in commodities. And of course, neither of them has handled it very well. So they're both, they're both in a bit of a mess. This year has been a pretty good year for commodities so far. That by definition makes it easier for these places to grow. The other thing I would say is if you look at Brazil, because of the, 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 the kind of constitutional mess they've had and some of the remarkably uh, tense issues going on there, they may be having a government emerging that is actually going to be more serious about some of its domestic economic policies than we've seen since the, very, uh, the days before Lula and the very earliest days of Lula. They're still very worried about Russia, and I can't resist throwing a, a question in here. You mentioned commodities and oil prices. Now, you may remember two years ago, you and I, we had a debate on Project Syndicate in early, uh, early 2015 about whether the oil price is likely to uh, go to $70, which is what you were talking about, because that was in the yeah. futures market, yeah. or stay in the yeah. $30 to $50 oh. range, which is what I thought. Uh, wh wh what do you feel about the, about the oil price right now? The, the one thing virtually guaranteed is that oil prices are not going to stay where they are today, that's for sure. The, 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 in guarantee that oil prices are going to move. Uh, I, I guess at the core of, of what I didn't realise we'd actually had a debate. I remember writing a piece about it just before I went in government. I didn't know that we'd actually... It was set up as a debate uh -huh, on the website. Uh -huh. yeah, we disagreed, <laughs> put it this way. So yeah. I, I guess my what I, what I had learned in 30-odd years of... of following this stuff, having done a PhD about oil mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and actually managed, managing uh, as a boss a lot of specialist commodities research people, is that it was, it's, it's really difficult to have a confident view about the long-term uh, price. And so I started to follow, uh, for want of nothing else that was helpful, the trend of the long-term futures market, and in particular when it deviates a lot from the spot price, because to me that would be some kind of sign of speculative excess. So on the Northern Powerhouse, I, I, I wonder if, is, if you believe that the project that now you are outside of the government will mm. be ditched because there is not the same enthusiasm that there was before. Some of the messaging uh, about Northern Powerhouse clearly uh, has been different in the short time that uh, Theresa May has become Prime Minister. Uh, and I, I think it's unfortunate that that was the case. Uh, but, but let me quickly add, I think there's a somewhat uh, of a misconceived view that she is not interested in the, the real underlying issues. And I have uh, quite a strong suspicion that as time emerges, uh, people will start to see evidence that indeed she's, she's 
pretty passionate about aspects of what you might more broadly call an industrial strategy, of which the so-called Northern Powerhouse and what some people call the Midlands Engine are both uh, key parts. So, do you know the, the degree of the um, intensity of the focus on the phrase, but on, on the underlying issues, I, I would be pretty hopeful uh, that there's going to be at least as much focus on th some of the things that I looked at and some others, because I became so passionate about this idea. I will be, uh, along with others, trying to cajole the government, making sure that they do, because especially in a post-Brexit environment, uh, issues to do with the Northern Powerhouse and places like the Midlands are, are even more important than they were before. The new Prime Minister, she has very strong rhetorical intentions yeah. to spread wealth from London to the rest of the country, but is there actually mechanisms to do that? And does she understand the mechanisms that would be required uh, to achieve those very, very big structural transformations in the British economy? I mean, let, let me say a couple of big picture things here. First of all, as I would often articulate as a minister, you won't really be able to judge whether the Northern Powerhouse has been a success or not for, for at least two uh, parliamentary terms, uh, because you're dealing with very, very uh, long-standing uh, issues, uh, some of which may be very, very difficult to reverse, even if you were successful, because a lot of them are quite powerful natural economic forces. That said, uh, and to my uh, uh, pleasure, in, for want of a better word, there are some tentative signs that within parts of the North, particularly the Northwest, there is already some stuff going on. Uh, for the past year, the PMI for the Northwest of England has actually been stronger than the national average, mm -hmm. and that had not been the case for many years before. Whether that's a temporary thing or s some sign of something actually going on is, of course, we don't know. But So another challenge to the government, which is even more difficult than uh, the transition from London to the North and all these other things is, of course, Brexit. Yeah, I was hoping I might have avoided that You one. can't avoid it. <laughs> Nobody in Britain can avoid it. The pound is falling, the guilt yields are going up. W w what's your interpretation of, what, uh, of the way the markets are judging uh, British uh, government policy? So is, is the market the real opposition to the government, as somebody said? Recently, an analyst yeah. of HSBC yeah. was clear saying that. So, I mean, this is so complex. It's quite interesting when you look at all the markets. Uh, until, until Anatole, maybe a week and a half ago, the gilt market wasn't that bothered about, two weeks ago, the gilt market wasn't that bothered at all. It is interesting that since the Prime Minister's speech, uh, there seems to be a slightly different tone, and we've, we've seen the gilt market uh, somewhat troubled, as well as the pound generally remaining weak, which is indicative of some fresh concern. And part of my mind wonders whether that is just only because of Brexit. Um, the Prime Minister also made some, uh, some quite interesting comments about issues to do with QE uh, and the independence of the Bank of England by inference, which I wouldn't, if I were an analyst, if I think of things that I learned over 30 years, I wouldn't entirely dismiss that having played some of the role as to how the markets behave, and it's not just this soft or hard Brexit, but, but obviously at the core of it all, uh, and reflective of the stance of many business people before the vote, uh, something as close to what is simply summarised as a hard Brexit is seen as something that will have British trade fall off a cliff with the EU on the day after we exit, uh, and, and with it, particularly if we have very tough policies on immigration, 
and something that requires more debate, in my opinion, than I generally see, issues that might weaken British productivity even more when a, 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 there's a lot of focus, and there should be, on trying to do things to boost British productivity. But uh, regarding the British pound, uh, can we fear a monetary crisis uh, because it has fallen sharply for the moment? You know, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a really facetious answer to start with. You know, I spent the best part of my career looking at the foreign exchange market and the Andy Warhol theory of 15 minute of fame is kind of true. So, I, you know, and I, th I think I know more than most people about the foreign exchange market, but I don't really know anything. So, <laughs> you know, it, the pound will go up and it'll go down. Um, obviously, if the UK is going to take uh, a very deliberate exit path and, and even if it doesn't, if it's difficult negotiations with the EU result in a very difficult exit path, then I think the foreign exchange market is probably going to stay pretty troubled by it because we don't know what that future for the UK will look like. And it, it's not really surprising that the foreign exchange market is, is, is concerned about this. You hinted earlier that it's not just Brexit, but for years uh, in Britain, the Treasury and the Bank of England have driven certainly economic policy and have been the dominant political institutions in the country. But now there seems to be quite a deep split within the government between the Treasury, Philip Hammond on the one hand, and the rest of the, uh, of, of the cabinet, possibly between the Bank of England and the Prime Minister. You know, what's your view about all this? You can't uh, uh, underestimate how much of a, an intense environment working in that sort of life is. And in this particular case, we have to remind ourselves that Theresa May as Prime Minister arrived on the scene eight weeks faster than she expected. Uh, and so here we are, um, middle, late October. It's, it's, and, and given the summer, it's, it's only really a couple of months that she and her team have been in place. And there's all these enormous issues, never mind, separately from Brexit, that she has to get her head around. And so, I think uh, one of the few things I, I learned in, the, in this 18 months is, is, is when you want to think conspiracy, cock up is perhaps a more logical conclusion to make. And there is, there is a great danger in, in overreading uh, something that may have been said or even an action that's been done that there is some deliberate thing to cause trouble for somebody else where in fact it's just something they didn't really mean to do. Uh, how is evolving the, the British economy for the moment because it has been quite resilient, but we see uh, yet. So what, one of the, well, of course, one of the ironies, which I think frankly complicates some of the, the, uh, the political debate inside cabinet and inside broader government about the Brexit strategy, is of course, so far, the big story is the economy has positively surprised. Uh, if you look at the purchasing managers indices, which from my training, are more reliable than many other statistics. Uh, they have been, they, they fell significantly at first, but not only have they bounced back, but they've gone on to, to high levels of strength. And, and let's just say, uh, a lot of people inside government didn't expect that to be the case either. Uh, and of course, that plays to the hand of, of, of the, the ag let's call it the aggressive, noisy Brexiteers who were saying, well, what was all the fuss about all along? It's not related to the weakness of the pound, uh, so I, I, think, I think you could suggest in the manufacturing sector, uh, obviously, where there is great sensitivity to competitiveness and the value of the pound, that would uh, appear to be the case. 
But what is interesting about these indicators is the service sector PMI has also been very strong. And I don't think you can explain that uh, because of the pound. It could well be because uh, individuals in the country think it's the end of austerity and you know, they have great expectations about a very friendly autumn statement, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it might well be that it's, it, it's, it's nothing to do with any of these things. What about the city? And uh, leaving aside, you know, the last few months and the PMIs and so on, looking to the longer term future, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how does the financial sector and the business service sector more generally look to you in a world where there isn't passporting and there isn't membership of the European single market? Well, it's obviously quite a test, um, and I've got, I've got contradictory instincts about it. Um, from having spent 30-odd years in the city, uh, and I, I started in the early days of, of the Big Bang Revolution. It kind of came, I was in the city about a year or so before that really started. You know, the city's ability to reinvent itself is pretty strong, and that, that shouldn't be forgotten. Um, Second thing I would say, which is a part of the contradiction, and, and, and oddly something I, my mind thought immediately after the Brexit vote, and still does, that there's a danger of reading too much into what the vote was, but, uh, but I do subscribe to it that it, it was a sign from a lot of people in, inside this country that the past few decades hasn't really dealt them a great deck of cards. And I think business leaders, whether they are in the city or elsewhere, need to still think through a lot of this better for themselves. And, and, and I find in the complexity of the, the Brexit discussions that a lot of business people who wanted us to remain for understandable reasons now basically think whatever's going to happen, we are going to have uh, access to the single market on exactly the same terms. And I think it is a mistake of theirs to, to, to have such a simplistic stance. Yeah. They need to understand that there's something going on out there that a lot of normal people, whatever you might describe them as, don't feel like the world has given them a great deck of cards. And uh, the business people have got, to, have got to adapt and respond to that. And so that, in, that includes the city, as well as lots of multinational businesses based here in the UK. So you're telling me that you feel a little bit of threat for the city from the present situation. If this is the case, do you really expect in the case of the UK outside the single, no passporting and so on, uh, to be a movement of business from the city in the continent and where? I wouldn't say it's a threat. I, I, I'd, say, I, I'd say it's a warning sign and a message that they have to think differently. Uh, you know, a phrase that I find going through my mind a lot is, uh, I'd call it, a, we, you know, we're, we're sort of entering the area what I describe as adaptive capitalism. Or, or we, need to, we need to adapt, you know, the city in particular, and obviously I, I owe my life to the success the city gave me, and I, I, I have a huge amount of respect for it. They have to realize that policymakers uh, are responding to what the British people said. And, and as much as the case is for the city to get all the support it needs because of its importance to the UK, that is not the first response our uh, policymakers are going to think of. They're going to think of what is the message that British voters want to tell us in order for us to stay in power. London as a financial centre will have to lose its uh, shine or will it stay uh, uh, like uh, New York and other uh, financial centres like that? Again, contradictory answers. Uh, for, for years I used to joke, including back in the days when I was at Goldman, that the, the biggest threat to the city 
would ultimately come if New York changed its time zone by five hours. <laughs> if we were on the same time zone as New York, then that would be a massive threat to the future of finance in London. Because of the, uh, the openness of our legal system, because of the depth of the uh, labour markets, because of the, the amount of, let's call it, almost in, uh, positive inertia that's grown up from decades of, of expertise, the likelihood that you could pick up the city of London and take it to Frankfurt or Paris or Geneva or Dublin, it, it, I, I think it's, it's not feasible. What is almost inevitable if, if London can't uh, retain passporting or, or replicate it, some marginal bits are going to shift. Uh, but as I said at the start of this part of the discussion, the city's ability to reinvent itself over the decades is, is, has been considerable. But do you think it is going to be just marginal in the sense that uh, can you imagine the main financial centre and business services centre of the U European Union being outside the EU in a situation if we have a hard Brexit where Britain doesn't recognise the authority of the European yeah, Court yeah, of yeah. Justice, doesn't recognise the authority of European regulators, and yet the main financial centre of the EU would be outside that. Is, is, is there, you couldn't imagine... Uh, the financial centre of the United States being in yeah, Bermuda yeah. or of China being yeah. in Singapore, could you? You know, my, I don't know. I mean, what I would say, I think there's a lot of twists and turns to go on all this stuff, a lot. Uh, if, if For anybody to have too much confidence about some clear track where all of this is going today, I think would be a big mistake. What, what I do sympathise with the nature of your question is if, if you have as hard an exit as you can as is, is, is a possibility, that will, that will challenge the status quo for London in, in European financial domination in a way that we haven't seen in our professional life. That, that is for sure. If I would ask you the same question, but asking to former Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than former minister, the question would be the same, the answer will be the same. So you, do you think that, uh, I mean, the, the big bankers, are really thinking now, in this moment, because of the present situation of relative, what I describe, uh, confusion or not clarity or the, the direction of the British government on Brexit, are really thinking to move part of their business outside the land. Listen, it's three and a half years since <laughs> I left there, so you'll have to go and ask <laughs> some of my old pals about, about that. I, c I c obviously can't speak, speak for them. What I would say is that if you go back to the early days post-crisis when the British government of the day introduced, um, began to introduce quite aggressive uh, and maybe justifiable policies about bonuses and things like this, uh, uh, I was part of a small group that actually had a, a brief uh, exploration of whether the commodities business could move to Switzerland. And after two, and, and having worked for a Swiss bank before, I kind of knew the answer before we did, but. You know, you, you can't, like I said a bit before, you, you can't replicate, even in the biggest Swiss cities, the kind of environment where you can have no. that number of people happily working and, and schools for the families, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, of course, th they will all be again, I would imagine, exploring these kind of things. And that, that's their duty, uh, doing what's best for their businesses and, and, their, and because they are, these are global businesses. What the big continental European banks do with their big international businesses will probably be the strongest sign because despite all the problematical things that have gone on, 
it is very interesting that the, the big international operations of the German banks and the French banks are not in Paris and Frankfurt, they're here. Last quick question from Jennifer. Uh, what one of the issues with uh, Brexit is the uh, clearing uh, settle and settlement. Uh, if clearing house move back to the continent and uh, don't stay here in in the uh, UK, how will it affect the financial uh, center here? Inside the US, you do you do have DC and New York. You know, Washington is the home of the Federal Reserve Board, and yet all the financial market stuff goes on uh, in in New York. So it, it's, not, it's not entirely impossible that certain uh, technical logistical things could be lost and you still get a lot of transactional activity in London. I, I wouldn't dismiss that, but obviously, again, it's, it's something that would, it would make people think about that decision. Well, we live in a world of radical uncertainty, I think, that, that, that's for sure. Uh, not dull at all, not dull. Not dull and not new. Uh, Jim O'Neill, thank you very much and Leonardo uh, Maizano of Il Sole 24 Ore and Jennifer uh, Neal of uh, Leco in Brussels. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org.